You're listening to Desi Women Diaspora, Episode 1. Hi everyone, welcome to Desi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Mala Kumar. For our first episode, I had a chance to sit down with Arthi Virani, a writer for Vogue India, and talk to her about her experience growing up in the Indian diaspora community of Japan. Arthi, thanks so much for being here. It's great to reconnect. We've known each other now for like 10 years. A decade, yeah, since we graduated from the new school. How have you been? I've been good. A lot has changed since the new school. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had a, a little bit of a career change. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I had just gotten married when I started grad school. I now have a baby. So there's been a few. Thank you. Thank you. There's been um, a few big life changes mm-hmm. uh, since our time there. Um yeah, I, I guess the biggest one has been that, you know, when I was fresh out of grad school, I started a job at a magazine. And after about a year there, I realized I, I really wanted to jump into the freelance life. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a big, big change. Yeah, yeah, that is a big change. <laughs> <laughs> um, so interestingly enough, even though we went to grad school for international affairs before you, I hadn't met a ton of South Asian women who had grown up outside of the states, Canada, England, or India. Yeah. You were one of the first. And I remember on the first day of class, you got up there and you're like, despite everybody thinking I'm Indian, I grew up in Japan. That's right. That's yeah. usually, I mean, it's amazing how many people think I'm just messing with them when I, when I say <laughs> that, because I mean, if you hear me talk, I, you know, I went to an American school, so that's yeah. why I sound the way I do. Um, but yeah, Japan is where I spent 18 years of my life. Yeah. So yeah. Japan is home. Japan is home. It's always going to be home. My parents still live there. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, when I think home, I think of Kobe, Japan. Yeah. So yeah. What, what was it like growing up there? Or let's back up even. Like, yeah. what, what's the history that led your family to Japan? So my grandfather moved to Kobe uh, from Gujarat mm-hmm. shortly after the Second World War. His family in India was in the jewelry business at the okay. time. And uh, he wanted to, to take the pearl business um just in a in a new direction. He was an entrepreneur by nature, and the hotspots for the pearl industry at the time were either China or Japan. You know, the Japan he experienced was incredibly different from anything I knew because you know mm-hmm. it was it was right after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. I remember him telling me stories about you know just there weren't even street lamps. It was no. it was it was you know coming out of a pretty bleak time um so for him to choose a place like that you know it's still something that i am kind of blown away by um and you know he left everything he knew um didn't know the language learned it kind of on the fly as he was doing business as he was setting up a business um and yeah he kind of set this he set up a pearl business and now my dad has taken over. Okay. Um, um, so it was the 1940s when the South Asian diaspora kind of grew in the country itself or had there been people come that came before? I I think there had been people who were there before um, the or around the, the first world war time for the textile industry. Right. But honestly speaking, the South Asian diaspora, I mean, it's not a significant sized community in Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, minorities in general make up something like 1% of the entire population. So within that minority is where the South Asian uh, Mm -hmm. minority exists. Arthi dug a little deeper into this after the interview. As of 2014, there were 28,047 Indian nationals recorded living in Japan. The country's total population is 127 million. 
I would say the main sort of industries people are there for um, are, I know the electronics trade, or, sorry, the electronics industry was a big one. And so is the jewelry business, diamonds and pearls. Right. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So what was it like growing up in Japan? You know, growing up there, I mean, it was home, so I didn't really look at it, you know, with, with a kind of raised eyebrow or detached perspective <laughs> or anything. It was all I knew. Um, but I was kind of made acutely aware of how unique it was when my family would travel to India. Right. So we would go back once or twice a year if we were lucky. Mm-hmm. But I would say at least the city I grew up in, it's, um, so it's Kobe. It's about an hour from Osaka, which is the mm-hmm. second largest city in Japan. Um, it's a port. So, by Japanese standards, it's considered a pretty cosmopolitan place. But again, I say that very relatively. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is a place where you do see the occasional non-Japanese person. Right. But even that said, it's a place where you're constantly reminded of your kind of outsider or foreigner mm-hmm. status. And as a result, um, the the Indian community was pretty insular right. um, because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I would say, and I'm, I'm kind of estimating here, but over half of the sort of 100 families, if I was to put a number on it, that's roughly the number of families, um, Indian families I grew up around mm-hmm. in Kobe. So about half of them, their lives were centered around um, the the Jain temple. Right. And so they would opt to live around there. You know, my mm-hmm. family is Gujarati. We mm-hmm. are Jain. Um, so that just kind of tells you how, I mean, even in choosing a place to live, mm-hmm. you know, those decisions were made based on where, you know, the temple was. So, um, yeah, I think people held on to their, whether it was their Gujarati-ness or Indian-ness, um, pretty, pretty strongly. And a lot of the times, uh, the values they held on to were the ones that, you know, they, they came into Japan with. So you had people coming in the, my grandfather, you know, in the late forties, but Mm -hmm. a a larger wave, I would say in the fifties, sixties. So yeah, that could, that could be a little, um, I guess, disorienting where you had, you know, um, kind of Japanese public life and then this sort of insular Indian yeah. culture happening at right. the same time. Did you have Japanese friends growing up? So when I was younger, so I'm talking like elementary school, you know, when when um, we were still kind of riding our bikes and playing outside, um, we had neighborhood friends who were Japanese, like went to Japanese school. Um, but I think as we kind of just got more immersed in school, um, we just became like more in our own bubbles. Yeah. and. You know, I, I did have Japanese friends who went to my international school, but that was about it. And your your mother grew up in India, right? My mom grew up in Bombay, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, she'll she'll always joke around and say that she she didn't even want to leave her neighborhood in Bombay, and somehow <laughs> she ended up, you know, yeah, in Japan. So, um, if you don't mind me asking, did your parents have an arranged marriage? They or? did. They yeah. had a yeah. It was very much arranged. Um, although I guess by arranged standards in the you know late 70s early 80s they they dated quote unquote for about three months so that was considered quite generous Mm -hmm. um at the time um my biggest question for my mom was always you know did you like you didn't you didn't you never traveled to japan before kind of signing up for a life there and she's like you know you marry a person not a city or a place so interesting yeah 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 um, so yeah, that's, uh, I think my mom's officially at that point now where she has been in Japan longer than she was in India. Right. Yeah. So do you, yeah. does she, do you think she identifies more as a Japanese citizen or resident than she does an Indian or is it kind of a hybrid identity somewhere? She, it's just definitely a hybrid. I mean, if anything, I, I would say that both her and me to a certain extent, um, 
we identify more with other hybrids rather than people <laughs> yeah. from, you know, even if I was going to speak to her, I, I speak for her, I would say that I think she identifies, yeah, more with people who kind of have this in-between status versus even somebody who's, you know, who went to the same school or college that she did in Bombay just because she has she hasn't lived there in so long. Right. Um, and I think Japan is unique in that way. Um because you can live there, you know, for the majority of your life and still, you know, just for because of pure optics and like what you look like and, you know, because the language is is quite a difficult one to learn. Right. Um, you, you just constantly feel like you're on the periphery. So I think mm -hmm. she, she definitely deals with that. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. 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 So did you go to Japanese medium schools? Right. No, I went to, um, so my school was called the Canadian Academy. It was a, <laughs> it was an international school founded by Canadian missionaries. Um, it was, I mean, we, we followed a pretty American curriculum, I would say. You yeah. know, we took the SATs, we had AP classes, okay. stuff like that. I mean, I would say over half of my graduating class ended up going to university in the States. Mm -hmm. And then the rest were kind of scattered, whether it was, you know, places in Europe or Australia mm -hmm. and like very few in Japan itself. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, I mean, we took Japanese on the side as one might take Spanish or, mm -hmm. you know, French or something here, but, um, yeah, it was very much an English yeah. school. But so are you fluent in Japanese? I'm not. And that's something that, um, I'm sometimes embarrassed to admit as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Japanese has just from a writing perspective, it has three different scripts, right? So mm -hmm. there's, Hiragana, there's katagana, which is an alphabet that's exclusively devoted to words that they've borrowed from different cultures. Okay. Yeah, so that just tells you the sheer like right. specificity of it. Um, and then there's kanji, which are the Chinese characters mm -hmm. that have, you know, Japanese interpretations. So I can understand mm -hmm. quite a bit. I'm conversational. Um, I mean, I've been in the U.S. now since 2002. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm definitely out of practice. But when I go back home, I can usually plug in after right. a few days. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And did your mom ever learn? My mom learned pretty formally, actually. Oh, wow. She, yeah, I think that was one of the things that helped. I remember she said, you know, it was about getting a driver's license and learning right. Japanese. And I think she'd always been a pretty independent person. So mm -hmm. those two things were super critical to her right. feeling like, you know, an independent, independent person um, mm -hmm. in a new country. Yeah. So you mentioned that the, you know, the Indian diaspora is quite insular, which is something that I've heard yeah. of many diaspora communities. Like people tend to form tight knit communities as they may not necessarily feel integrated or they kind of hold on to values or norms that are custom to generations ago when they first came. Right. Did you feel that way? Because you got to go back to India quite a bit. So you. I did. Yeah. I did. And I, I'll tell you, there was one. Um, there's one incident in particular where I realized how kind of frozen in time we were versus <laughs> yeah. sort of our counterparts in India. So we were back for a, um, I think it was around New Year's time and it must have been, you know, probably in, in early high school. Um, and I remember my mom telling us, you know, make sure you dress appropriately, cover up. I know you're going out. I think we were going to a, a club or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my sister and I, I distinctly remember this. We were in like, full sleeve, like cardigans. <laughs> yeah. And we felt like nuns in that club. I mean, people were <laughs> leagues ahead of us. And we just, I, I just remember that being a really depressing New Year's. I mean, yeah. because we, not for, you know, no, not necessarily for what we were wearing, but just because we just felt like such fish out of water. Like yeah. we really felt like who, who are we, you know, we don't really identify with, you know, the, the, our, our peers here. Um, and this is just, 
were clearly out of step. Yeah. 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 So by the time you came over to the States for university, did you feel somewhat connected with the culture here because you had studied at least at Canadian universities? Yeah, I think, you know, so just because of friends I had um, and just books. I mean, I, I think yeah. books were my biggest ways to identify with American culture. Overall, yeah, I think out of any of the cultures I've kind of grown up around, um, I definitely felt the most natural connection yeah. to the States just yeah. because of, I think, pop culture, right. language. Um, a lot of our teachers were American. Mm -hmm. So that kind of stuff impacts you. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, I'm just curious, like the media representation in Japan for me is just fascinating because yeah. there's at least in America, like in the American limited worldview of Japan, everything is fetishized, everything yes. is super extreme, everything yes. is just kind of ridiculous, you know? Mm -hmm. Did you feel that sense growing up there? And how was it being a South Asian woman? Like, did you feel at all represented in the culture around you? No, but I think that was such a given that yeah. that wasn't even like a gray area. Yeah. It was like, why would you expect to be represented in the culture? <laughs> you know, that was yeah. sort of my baseline. So um, in that sense, I I was consuming plenty of um, commercial like Indian culture. Yeah. So that kind of filled that void. Right. Um, but you know, I, I, this kind of answers what you're asking, but, uh, I guess where it kind of became especially awkward for me was that, like I said, you know, you were kind of reminded of your foreigner status on mm. a daily basis. I mean, we're talking on, you know, we would be commuting to school on trains and people would kind of stare and, mm. and point and very overt stuff. Right. I mean, nothing, nothing that would be scarring or like, you know, in a way it was like constantly being uh, reminded that, oh, you're, you're like kind of interesting and the other and mm. exotic and, you know, all that stuff. So that was, I guess a lot of us just brushed it off, but I realized that that wasn't a normal way to yeah. grow up, you know, to, to yeah. kind of always, always be reminded that, um, the Japanese word for it is gaijin. That's mm -hmm. what foreigner means. But that said, I mean, I, I realized that I might be painting kind of a, a, you know, disturbing picture. But overall, uh, even though there's this, this sense of being reminded that, that you're not Japanese, there is this peaceful coexistence that mm -hmm. happens there. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. 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 You feel like you were treated with respect and then you could get around safely. Yeah. 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 Safety was never an issue. Um, there is this, they're just, as a culture, there is this sort of undercurrent of, you know, because everybody, sh it sounds superficial, but, you know, space is such an issue there, right? Yeah. So everybody is very just naturally courteous and mm -hmm. respectful. And um, in that sense, I was pretty spoiled. So what was it like at university when, once you came to the States? So I actually, uh, I attended Syracuse University. And part of the reason, not entirely, but part of the reason I chose that school was because my dad attended Syracuse. Oh, so he, okay. you know, he had kind of a similar, um, I, I guess, education um, mm -hmm. path mm -hmm. where he went to international school in mm -hmm. Kobe as well and then followed it up with university here. Granted, he went for engineering. Mm -hmm. I went for the journalism school. So, you know, we, we had different um, experiences. But I'd grown up hearing about Syracuse. Mm -hmm. So, um, relatively speaking, it wasn't as foreign to me as, you know, yeah. a, a completely unknown place would have yeah. been. I struggled a little bit in the first semester until I kind of found my, my people. And um, I would say that what I struggled with a lot was... Uh, you know, Syracuse had a pretty significant Indian American population. Right. Um, and I realized in that sort of initial enthusiasm of freshman year and everybody wanting to get to know each other, there was a lot of 
oh, I'm Indian, you're Indian, let's hang out. And I realized that just, you know, my closest kind of connections and friends ended up being other hybrids like myself. So my, you know, um, one of my closest friends uh, is from South Africa, Mm -hmm. but her parents um, are German. So she kind of grew up with this, you know, third culture kidness too. And and those were the people I ultimately um, found Mm -hmm. the sort of deepest connections with. Yeah. And I feel like this is true of a lot of cases. If you're African, Indian, whatever immigrant population versus the first generation or second generation of that ethnicity or nationality, there's a very clear divide. So often they don't commingle. My mother grew up in the States and my father grew up in India. So Uh that I'm not a third culture kid, but I had that weird hybridness where I'm more American than most people would think. Right. You know, so I just... Because your mom grew up here. Yeah. Yeah. So the people are like, oh, isn't it crazy when your mom does this? I'm like, no, because she didn't do that growing up. That's so interesting to hear you say that because that's kind of how I feel about my dad because he was, you know, a toddler when he moved to Japan. So, you know, he's not your stereotypical Indian dad. Yeah, exactly. you know, when people kind of automatically break into the faux Indian accent. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, wow, yeah. my dad doesn't sound like that at all. Exactly. So I don't identify. So how was that? Like, did you find a, a group of Indians ultimately that you felt comfortable with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't so much of a group as it was individuals. And I think because I was a little um, choosy, for the lack of a better word, I think the connections I made were really kind of deep and, and mm-hmm. um, I guess, long-lasting because it wasn't just sort of that, like, let's meet as because part of the Indian, Indian Association and, yeah. you know, see where that goes. Yeah. It was like, I, I genuinely like you as a person. Very cool. Yeah. Nice. So after undergrad, where did you end up? Um, after undergrad, uh, so I was on what they call a student visa, right? Mm-hmm. So I had a year um, to work. And mm-hmm. in that year, I kind of had to secure sponsorship. Otherwise, it was like, see ya. Oh, yeah. um, and journalism in general was not in such a great place in 2006 when I graduated. Um, so it was it was really difficult. I, I, I moved to New York City. I had a couple of internships at a publication, at a nonprofit, but none of those really turned into, you know, sponsored things. The, the immigration thing proved to be a huge hurdle. So I actually ended up making the decision to go back to Japan okay, wow. for about eight months. Um, and, you know, I always knew I wanted a master's, but mm-hmm. I just assumed kind of in the trajectory I'd planned for myself that it would happen way later. Yeah. But I think I had a year between undergrad and grad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you spent most of that time back in Japan. I did, which was interesting. That was, I think, the last, you know, kind of unknowingly, it was the last time I I spent living with my parents mm-hmm. um, because after that I moved here. I ended up getting right. married. You know, didn't move back. Um, so that it was a little, uh, I think, stifling at the time. But yeah. I'm glad I had that. In-kind support for Desi Women Diaspora is provided by Sanjara Inc digital solutions that serve the greater good. So, you know, you talked a lot about your journalism career. Can you tell me a bit about how growing up in Japan or being South Asian, combination of all these things, how did that kind of influence and lead you to where you are as a journalist? Sure. So I think when you're, again, made aware of that outsiderness perpetually, you know, on a daily basis, you become somewhat of an observer. And I think that's what happened to me. So there was that going on. And there was just also this very early kind of love I had for reading. I mean, I I read all the time. I was that kid who would like bring books to family (laughs) gatherings and my mom would have to be like, don't bring your book this time. You know, I I was that person. And also I think something that really impacted me was, um, so when I was 11 years old, um, there was a massive earthquake in Kobe. So Kobe was, you know, everybody, it was, it was crazy because 
everybody was kind of predict- predicting a massive earthquake for Tokyo, but Kobe kind of was not on anybody's radar. So it was 1995. It was a 7.2 earthquake. It killed over 5,000 people wow. in my city. Yeah. Um, and, you know, after we'd evacuated, after we kind of had an action plan in terms of what we were going to do as a family,、mm-hmm. I remember one of the first things I did was、um, just write. You know,、yeah. I was 11 years old. I didn't know how else to make sense of、mm-hmm. the tragedy. And、um, I think my parents saw that too, and they、yeah. really nurtured it because、That's、they、great. were like, wow, you did this. You know, just because you wanted to.、Right. And so I think that that sort of combination of, of writing just sort of being this really cathartic thing combined with that, you know, observer status that I constantly had、right. naturally led me to journalism.、Mm-hmm. So, what are the kinds of stories that you are trying to seek out? I think right now, and I mean, always really, I. I really enjoy、um, I enjoy writing profiles. I enjoy <laughs>、yeah. you know, just sitting down with people and、um, just offering、uh, an angle into them that you know, people may not get from the occasional soundbite. Or,、right. you know. um, and it's getting harder and harder to do, you know, you have, especially when it comes to people who, are, you know, who have that celebrity status because you, know, you have the whole publicity machine to、right. deal with. Um, everybody wants to sound polished and manicured.、Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's tough. But yeah, that's the goal to kind of catch people in their, their human、yeah. you know, moments. And I think I do, you know, because I, I grew up in a place where I didn't see people who looked like me、mm-hmm. or, you know, had my background kind of in the limelight. I think that's why I've made a conscious decision to go after、um, not only South Asian stories, but South Asian stories、uh, that, that, Kind of originate from the diaspora.、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you, you write a lot for Vogue India. I do, yeah. yeah. Do you I, get to cover those kinds of stories a lot for them? I do, and that's, that's partly why I love working for them.、Um, so I, I started working for them when they were just, you know, I think they were maybe a year or two、mm-hmm. old. And、uh, they didn't really have a US presence or,、mm-hmm. or any kind of content that spoke to a diaspora audience.、Right. And since then, they've expanded and they certainly have those kinds of stories. But I'd like to think that I like, push that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, who's the favorite person that you've ever interviewed? Oh my gosh. And why? Whew, that's a tough one, actually.、Um, I think the most kind of unexpectedly.、Um, Rewarding、um, interview would have to be Ariana Huffington. Oh, wow.、Okay. Um, and again, she, which is, you know, I, I understand that she doesn't necessarily fit like that <laughs> South Asian diaspora ness I just talked about, but I was pleasantly sur- surprised by how just warm, accessible,、oh. how much universal appeal she had as a person.、Yeah. And she, listening to her is really an exercise in, in listening to somebody who knows. Their audience.、Yeah. You know, I, she, she knew she was being interviewed for Vogue India.、Mm-hmm. And not to say that she was、uh, not genuine, but she had she'd kind of curated、mm-hmm. her answers in a certain way、um, to really wearing... resonate with、right. an Indian audience. Right. And、That's、I admired、amazing. that. Yeah.、Um, so, you know, she certainly stands out.、Mm-hmm. Um, but more recently,、uh, actually, one of my first interviews after the baby was.、Uh, A New York based farmer,、uh, his name is Viraj Puri,、okay. and he is a founder of a company called Gotham Greens. Okay, yeah.、Um, have you picked up their stuff? I mean, they're all over.、Yeah. So he has a really fascinating background, and he's changing the idea of what it means to be a, a farm、mm. and, and what farming in an urban context can look like.、Yeah. And he also has a very kind of global, diaspora friendly、yeah. background. So、um, it's always fun when, when different things like that come together.、Um, 
and yeah, I, I, it was unexpectedly kind of refreshing mm-hmm. and informative. And I learned a lot about urban agriculture through his lens. How do you think your career would have been different if you had gone back to Japan? I think had I embraced my sort of awkwardness and uniqueness, I think I'd like to think that I could have carved out a niche for myself in the journalism world, being a non-Japanese person reporting on Japan. Yeah, so I'd I'd like to think I could have done what I'm doing maybe with the Indian diaspora here, but with people in Japan. Um, Cool. Yeah. Um, All right, so kind of slightly switching gears a bit. What advice would you give to, let's say, like the audience that may be listening to this podcast? I'm sure we're going to get some younger South Asian women who are kind of starting out in their career and they're trying to figure out like where where is my voice in all of this? What advice would you give to like a young South Asian woman, especially somebody who's got a hybrid story, as you say? Yeah, I mean, so I, I read I'm paraphrasing, but I recently read something along the lines of, you know, if you're kind of authentic you really don't have any competition so i think it's about embracing your you know uniqueness your weirdness your hybridness um and you know in whatever way you want to let that play out i don't think i don't think it necessarily means you have to go down a creative path or an artistic path but you know even in in the business world there are a multitude of ways you can bring that authenticness in so i think it's about embracing that rather than kind of pushing it away and, and, you know, wanting to become like everybody else. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I feel like the things that made me an outsider growing up made me the weird kid. Yeah. Honestly, those are the things that people find interesting about me as an adult. And interestingly enough, this group of women that I've um, clicked with and, and connected with in Jersey City, where I live, Again, so many of them are the hybrids. Really? Yeah, they're they're people, they're women like me who, um, you know, are first generation. They they've moved from you know everywhere from Afghanistan to Venezuela. I mean, right. we, we have yeah. such a Jersey City is super diverse that way. But we're all kind of figuring it out together. And yeah. I realized maybe that's what I was looking for, and not necessarily kind of existing versions of lives yeah. that I could right. copy paste. It's more like no, I just needed a group of people who were stumbling just as much as I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you've had such a great perspective into American, Canadian, I guess, obviously Japanese and Indian upbringings and cultures. So, yeah. I mean, how do you bring all that together, especially when thinking about who your son's going to be or yeah. how you deal with personal relationships? Like, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from each of those cultures? Oh, my gosh, that's such a great question. Um, I think... And again, he's one and a half, so we have a very long way to go. But I think, um, you know, language is something I think about a lot. And I think about the fact that being trilingual or bilingual, you know, stretches your brain in such a variety of directions and and kind of the rewards are, you know, more than you can even really realize, right? Like, it's not just about having the skill to translate. Like, it, it gives you a whole different outlook, you know, speaking multiple languages. And I'm sure you know that. Um... And I struggle with that, especially in the context of raising my son, because English is really the only language that I can confidently say that I'm fluent in. Mm -hmm. The other languages are conversational. And so I don't know. I'm not confident that I can pass those on to him. And in not being able to pass those languages on, I wonder if I'm giving him a diluted version of the life that I had. Um, But I I do have to remind myself that, again, it goes back to that embracing your authenticity thing where I think if I'm just kind of unapologetically myself and if I'm naturally bringing a lot of those cultures that I grew up around to the table, 
I am going to impart some of that onto him and, and, you know, he'll, he'll put it together in his own hybrid way. Yeah. 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 Do you think he's ever going to, I mean, obviously you're going to go back to Japan and visit your parents throughout your life. Do you, do you hope that he has some connection to the country? I do. You know, that was the first trip he took. (laughs) So I'll, you know, I think we're going to keep reinforcing that for the rest of his life. And I hope he embraces that. And I hope he kind of takes that on as like a very fluid part of who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did your husband grow up in Japan? No, he grew up in Long Island in Connecticut. Um, okay. So his, his parents are also, you know, they're originally from Gujarat. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have a similar kind of heritage, but very different yeah. experiences. How, what does he, what does he feel like when he goes back to Japan and sees his wife interacting with this country that he always calls it my natural habitat, which <laughs> makes me feel like a little strange, but part of the reason I love him is that he, He's so comfortable there. Mm-hmm. And that was right off the bat. I mean, he visited when I was dating and it wasn't a forced thing. He just naturally felt a connection to the place. But I do think that to a certain degree, going there for him is, is a vacation. That's part of why he likes it, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a complete 180 from anything he knows here. Yeah. But for me, it's home. So in that sense, our experiences when we go back are very different. Mm-hmm. He's all about the food. And whereas I'm, you know, I'm very content eating my mom's Gujarati food in Japan. And I, I can tell that sometimes he just cannot wrap his head around the fact that, like, we're in Japan. Like, why are we sitting here eating, yeah. you know, Gujarati food? But, yeah, yeah that's, that's the reality of what it is. Yeah. Um, what was it like traveling around Japan as a kid? It was, uh, you know, we did a lot of it. I think the incredible thing about Japan is sort of that coexistence of really ancient history mm-hmm. and futuristic kind of trend setting that they're doing there. And like mm-hmm. this stuff can be happening within minutes of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see that here. I miss yeah. that here. Yeah. Um, I think when something's considered old here, it's like 300 years right. max. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to travel to Japan, but the one I example I always give people in terms of like, just that weird, like, ancient meets you know super future is um the meiji shrine and uh harajuku you know which is like goth punk central are (laughs) with it i mean you get off at the same subway stop you know i think here sometimes the past can have a negative connotation um but i think there's something to be said for a culture that has a reverence for the past um yet it doesn't really prevent them from progress you know it doesn't have to be this like stark yeah, binary. that is really interesting. I never yeah. thought about it like that. Hmm. Um, speaking of the past and I guess the history of Japan, you know, I've my brother's wife is half Japanese. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, well, I mean, she grew up in Ohio, but yeah. she's half Japanese. And one of her family friends is a professor. And he was telling me at their wedding, actually, that Japan has kind of done this marketing campaign in a way to not highlight the diversity that does exist in Japan. Like they're always trying to prompt like promote this idea that Japan is the most homogenous country in the world. You and I learned that in grad school. I, it's reinforced every day at the UN. Mm-hmm. So it kind of erases like the histories of the South Asian and other communities there. Yeah. Do you ever feel like that's been a problem or that's something that you hope the Japanese government or institutions will recognize, like the contributions of South Asians to Japan? Yeah, I mean, you know, the last I checked, and, and you can fact check this, but... Um, Japan's population is on the decline. Yeah. I mean, they could be actually benefiting hugely from immigration. immigration yeah. um, and part of that is acknowledging the place immigrants have played in their history. Yeah. Um, so I think it would be, you know, a disservice. This is something we're struggling with here, too, where it's all about just the narratives that, mm-hmm. that surround, you know, 
what goes into the creation of a country and, um, you know, the kind of lies that are told in the process yeah. of, of creating that narrative. And yeah, I think Japan is definitely struggling with that. As a journalist, if you were offered the chance to cover and create that narrative, what are some of the things that you'd want to make sure that people understand out of that narrative? Um, about South Asians in yeah. particular in yeah. Japan? I think, again, you know, my sort of go-to storytelling approach is always profiles, right? Mm -hmm. So I would want to zone in on a few key people mm -hmm. and really highlight the fact that, you know, they left the luxury of familiarity to build businesses and futures and in, in a country that they really knew, you know, nothing about. Do you know, I, this is probably a stat that, I'm guessing this is a stat that's not recorded anywhere, but I wonder what the rate of return is for South Asian diaspora who grew up in Japan, leave the country like you did to come to university and then come back to Japan permanently. So anecdotally, I can say that there's been a sharp, sharp difference in male versus female. Yeah. So, you know, because a lot of our families have family businesses, a lot of guys end up going back. Right. The jewelry business in general also tends to be kind of an old boys club. Yeah. All my sort of female Indian friends who grew up in Japan have ended up somewhere else. Yeah. Um, although there are many reasons why, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a struggle I have all the time. There's a lot of reasons why I would love to raise, you know, my son in Japan. It's safe. It's, mm. you know, I mean, healthcare. you think healthcare, <laughs> you think about what's going on with things like gun violence in this country. It's yeah. not an issue, but you know. Yeah. We're here. Yeah, you're here. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Thank you. This All right. is fun. Yeah, this is great. Arthi, thank you so much for your insights. I learned a ton from our conversation. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Basie Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. We'll be back later with more episodes covering more experiences in more countries. If you'd like to share your story on Basie Women Diaspora, go to malakumar.com backslash podcast to find out how.